Our scripture this morning comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. And they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask. Then they came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, Jesus asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus sat down and called to the twelve and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. And then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. These are our sacred stories. What were you arguing about on the way? That they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus sat down and called the twelve and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. There's a dance, isn't there? A dance between arrogance and pride on one side and low self-esteem and feeling completely unworthy on the other. In my experience, Christianity has veered toward each of these depending on the topic. When it comes to understanding Christianity's place among the religions of the world, there's a tremendous amount of arrogance, of self-importance, of believing Christianity to be either the best or, in many cases, the only way to God. But when it comes to understanding the role of humans within the Christian framework, well, many of our hymns tell the story. Amazing Grace contains the affirmation that Jesus saved a wretch like me. And in Alas, and did my Savior bleed, one sings, Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm? as I. There's one you may not know. In fact, if you've only ever come to Covenant, I know you don't know it. <laughs> it's called, Lord, I deserve thy deepest wrath. Verse 2 reads, my heart is vile, my mind depraved, my flesh rebels against thy will. I am polluted in thy sight. Yet, Lord, have mercy on me still. I could keep naming hymns. We could play this game a long time. There are so many that refer to us as sinners, as lost, as wretched, as blind, as forsaken, as having nothing within ourselves to offer. For many of us, our religious upbringing taught us that we are debased sinners, that we are worthless. What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, 
For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus sat down and called the twelve to them and said, Whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. And then he took a little child and he put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. At the time of Jesus, children were the most vulnerable members of society. They were at the very bottom in social standing. You could get no lower than a child. Welcoming a child, saying a child is great, is a radical reversal. This is part of the turning of things upside down that we've been reading about these several weeks in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus changes and opens his ministry to the Gentiles. Jesus teaches the disciples that he's heading toward the cross, not toward the glory they imagined for the Messiah. And now Jesus is telling them that their caste system, their social hierarchy needs to be completely flipped. This really shouldn't be new information for the disciples. Jesus has said basically this again and again. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Let the little children come to me for to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you've done for the least of these little ones you have done for me. Jesus's mother Mary sang out about this great reversal when she learned she was pregnant. She's saying, God has shown strength with the arm. God has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. The trouble with reversals is they're really hard to achieve. They go against the status quo, against culture and habit, against ingrained bias and belief. And well, the disciples just don't seem to get it. I'm not sure we do either. I know many of us have read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Last Sunday during adult education, we watched an interview with her. Throughout human history, notes Wilkerson, there have been three caste systems that have stood out. Nazi Germany, India, and the United States. The United States, where race is the primary tool and visible decoy, the front man for caste. Our American caste system began with the first slaves from Africa who were brought here in 1619 which means that slavery and its horrific consequences have been with us for 402 years, whereas it's been only 156 years since its putative end with the Civil War in 1865. So our caste system hasn't been the exception, an aberration, or a passing chapter of American history. It's been the socioeconomic foundation upon which the country, our country, has been built. 
According to Wilkerson, we live in a caste society where all institutions, cultural norms, and social attitudes and interactions reinforce caste boundaries. These are so pervasive, most of us don't even notice. She says it this way, caste is insidious and therefore powerful because it's not hatred. It's not even necessarily personal. It's the worn grooves of comforting routines and unthinking expectations, patterns of social order that have been in place for so long that it looks like the natural order of things. What were you arguing about on the way? They were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And so Jesus sat down and called the twelve to him and said, whoever wants to be first must be last and take care of all the others. And then he took a little child and put it among them and taking it in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child, one such little one, in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. There's another hymn that comes to mind. I sang it a lot in my childhood. It was a very popular one for the invitation. The invitation in the churches that raised me came at the very end of the service. My dad would stand at the front holding his Bible, waiting for people to walk the center aisle and be saved. Some of you will know this one too. Just as I am, and waiting not, to rid my soul of one dark blot, to these, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. If you sing it long enough, you get to a verse that begins, just as I am, poor, wretched, blind. We could pause here for a moment to say how abysmal it is that blind is used over and over again to be negative. It's awful. Kind of like how darkness is used over and over again to be bad. No. But that's a different sermon, so we'll get back to it. <laughs> Where do these ideologies come from? Surely this view of the state of humanity is connected to an understanding of substitutionary atonement, wherein horrible, depraved sinners are saved, not by anything we might be able to do or be, but by Jesus' death on the cross. This theological view is not very popular in the Bible, but it is very popular right now among Christians. I've been thinking a lot about our Jewish siblings. They've just finished the days of awe, including Rosh Hashanah, the celebration of the new year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Imagine if we had a day at the end of the year, a day to review, to check in with ourselves about our personal failings and our participation in systems of injustice. And then, with awareness, we sought to atone for our shortcomings. We sought to do things differently and better in the coming year. 
When we approach our mistakes from a place of curiosity and compassion, we can consider our failings from a place of guilt, not shame. Knowing that while we make mistakes, we are not mistakes. Knowing that while we sometimes do something bad or have bad choices, we are not bad people. When we see our failings from a place of worth and value, rather than from a place of debasement and worthlessness, we can make amends, we can change. In her epilogue, Wilkerson deflects criticisms that she's not offered any solutions. She writes, the goal of this work has not been to resolve all the problems of a millennia old phenomenon, but to cast a light onto its history its consequences, its presence in our everyday lives, and to express hopes for its resolution. Such hopes, she continues, begin with radical empathy. Radical empathy based upon awareness and education that insists upon the common humanity of all people. The thing about empathy is it isn't possible when we believe ourselves to be worthless. We cannot welcome children or anyone else if we don't believe ourselves worthy of offering welcome, worthy of involving ourselves in the great reversal. If, we're think, if we think we're worthless, how can we get any of this done? If we think we have nothing to offer, nothing to give, how does anything ever change? Greatness does need to be turned on its head, but we cannot do that from a place of believing ourselves to be worms. So maybe the first step is to understand that we are worthy of love and belonging, and indeed, we are made in God's image. We are seen by God and declared to be not just good, but very good. Very good, every one of you. We are loved from a place of love and worth. We can see ourselves as part of the love of God and we can extend that love to ourselves and to everyone else, to the earth. When we cannot see ourselves as beloved, we cannot see others that way either. When we do not know ourselves as enough, we're constantly grasping for affirmation. We run around in large or small circles, always looking for someone or something able to convince us of our belovedness, our worth. And when we live out of that kind of scarcity, we get caught up in who's the greatest, and we lose sight of our own worth and the intrinsic worth of all others. We argue with each other about who's the greatest rather than remaking the world. So no more, no more of that. You are enough, you are beloved, you are worthy. You are not the most important, though. You're not better than anyone else. You're not the greatest. And you are great. We're all great. You are loved. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've written your name on the palm of my hand. 
You are mine. I will be with you. I have loved you forever. With loving kindness, I have drawn you up. You are good, good, very good. So now, from a place of love, let's change things. Surely this is the work of love your neighbor as yourself. We must love ourselves in order to love our neighbors. Loving ourselves does not mean we see ourselves as the greatest, but it also does not mean that we see ourselves as worthless. God calls on us to reverse any social order that puts any beloved at the bottom. Wilkerson writes, The price of privilege is the moral duty to act when one sees another person treated unfairly. At the least that a, and the least that a person in the dominant caste can do is not make the pain any worse. The least a person in the dominant caste can do is not make the pain any worse. That's the least. Jesus wants a lot more from us. A lot more than just not making it worse. Jesus wants us to make it better. Jesus wants us to turn the social hierarchy on its head, wants us to find a way for everyone, especially those who've been pushed to the bottom, to know that they are welcomed and loved. And then Jesus took a little child and he put it among them and taking that in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Amen.